Our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices of sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we do thank you for the perfect sacrifice. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. O God, we do pray that you would help us to see more of the greatness of your work of salvation. We pray, Lord, you would help us to see more of our need of that salvation. Lord, we do pray that you would work in the hearts of all who are here, that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would see the greatness of our sins and, and the greatness of the mercy that we need from you. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are a great Savior and to trust in your word this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear preaching from it. We pray that you would be with Mr. Horn and that you would give him the words that, that you would have us to hear this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we continue on from the first part of chapter 10, the argument that, that the author is making is that the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, it was given not because it was effective. It was given so that it could be a shadow. It could be this, this, this picture in darkness of a reality that was required. And that everything in it showed that it was not effective. It was obvious to anybody that looked at every year they would keep making the same sacrifices year after year. They would make sacrifices for the sin of the people and the people's sin wasn't removed. Because the next year they'd have to go back and make exactly the same sacrifice. So they were always supposed to recognize that these things were just a shadow. They weren't the real thing. Now we have the very image. We don't have the substance in the sense that Christ isn't being crucified in front of us. But now we have the image, the idea that Christ was crucified for our sins. We have that image, and so we can look back at the shadows that were cast and understand the shadows because they were the shadows that were cast by that image. And so every year they would go up and do it which proved that it wasn't the substance, it was only a shadow. The shadow could not, the sacrifices could not remove sin. It was just the shadow. But Christ is different. And when we think of those shadows, we can think about how it benefits us. We can look back at those shadows and recognize things about the image because of the shadow that it casts. But at the same time, they were the ones that sacrificed millions of animals. So we should ask, what was the benefit for them to do it? 
And the benefit for them is they were doing the will of, the God, of God. They were doing obedience to God. And if they had faith and they were doing it out of faith, it was a blessing to them. It was those sacrifices, if they were doing it because they believed in the true God, those sacrifices had real benefits to them, not because of the sacrifice, but because of the obedience. It's really important to, to recognize that what God always wanted was obedience. Deuteronomy 5, 28 and 29 says, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. When they go up on Mount Sinai and the elders go up with Nadab and Abihu and and Aaron and they go up and they see God, they say, we don't want God. And God's response is, that's right, they don't want God. But I wish I had a people who wanted me. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, is produce a people that actually want him. And so if you had faith, the testimony that you actually wanted God as your God as you went and did those sacrifices. The sacrifices bought you nothing, but they were a testimony that you really wanted God. If out of a heart of obedience, you were making the sacrifice. But the sacrifices never bought anything. They never bought any, any goodwill with God. They were never intended to do that because there's no work by which we can do that will make us, us pleasing to God. But what God wanted is a people who did have a will to do his will, that did have a will to, to walk in his ways rather than walking in the ways of the world. So since no one wanted to do the will of God, right, as as Paul quotes in, in Romans, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus Christ had to take on flesh. He had to become incarnate so that there would be one that would do the will of the Father. Because all the rest of us were rebels that refused to do the will of the Father. And so without him taking on flesh, without him joining us, without him partaking of the same flesh that has the same requirements of the law, he couldn't redeem the flesh. So the sacrifice of bulls and goats were never sufficient because we're not a goat, we're not bulls. But Christ had to take on flesh. He had to become like us so that his sacrifice could be sufficient because God could finally find one that would actually do his will. And then he joins us to him, the one who did the will of the Father, so that we can join him and do the will of the Father. Because while we are never made right by our works, when Christ saves us, he came to produce a people who desired to obey him, who desired to do his will. That's why Christ came, and he didn't fail. He was successful. By doing the will of the Father, he produced a people that would be sanctified to do the will of the Father. And that's what this week's passage is about. So verses 5 through 7, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, 
but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now it starts with therefore, so it's good to look at the immediate context. The immediate context is what I've just been talking about in verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And it's important to recognize what the takeaway sins are because in the church, most people think of taking away sins as not taking away sins. It means overlooking sins, forgetting sins, closing your eyes to sin. That's not why Christ came. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to take away sin. And so if somebody says they're a Christian, their sin isn't taken away, they don't know Christ. Because that's not what Christ came for, to make you comfortable in your sin. He came to take away your sin. And he was not a failure like the bulls and goats. He succeeds in what he came to do. He will take away your sins. He will sanctify everyone he he receives. And again, that sanctification can never pay and cause us to be made right with God. But those who are right with God, they are sanctified. He came to do the will of the Father and he came to produce a people that would do the will of the Father. So the writer of Hebrews has been saying it's obvious that a better high priest was needed. It's, it's obvious a better covenant was needed. And it's obvious that a better sacrifice was needed. Because those sacrifices that made atonement, like it says in the Old Testament, when they gave those sacrifices, it made atonement. That atonement wasn't a permanent atonement. That just caused God to ignore the sins for a little while so that his wrath did not break out among Israel and destroy them. Because remember, he said, you don't want my presence to go with you. If my presence goes with you, you are an unrighteous people. My violence, I will break out in my wrath and destroy all of you. So I'll give you this system so I can stay among you. But it didn't take away their sins. And so a better sacrifice was needed. One that would take away, not just forgive, not just ignore, but actually take away sins. So a better sacrifice was needed. One that would produce sanctification. One that would produce a holy people. One that didn't need to be repeated over and over again. So when he came into the world, he said, I understand why they translate it as when he came into the world. But I think it's better understood as through his coming into the world, he declared what Psalm 40 meant. And that word lego, right, it's what logos comes from. And it's usually translated to say but it really means to lay out. And so there's where we get logic from, right? It's to lay out. And so Christ, by him taking on flesh, by him obeying the will of the God, he's laying out what Psalm 40 meant. By his coming into the world, he's laying out what it means. There's no record of him actually saying this. Could he have said it? Sure. But it's also saying that when he came into the world, which means... When he was a baby. So I don't think you should be thinking about this as him saying these words. What he's doing is he's making it plain. This is what it was come that he came to do. And so he's quoting from Psalm 40, starting with sacrifice and offering. 
And so as whenever you see a, a quote in the New Testament of the Old, it's useful to understand the context of the Old Testament quote, since the Holy Spirit never quotes scripture out of context. He's the author of it all. The word of God, Jesus Christ, is consistent. So the five verses leading up to, to this verse that, that the writer of Hebrews is going to quote, it starts with, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and heard my cry. I also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear, and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So he's talking about, in the context of it, he's talking about the wonder of what God does. And then he starts talking about the greatest wonder that God does, which he prepared a body for his son to take on flesh. And so he's saying, this is the wonder. The wonder is that Jesus Christ became incarnate. And then after that, he says, sacrifices and offerings, and, excuse me, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire. Sacrifices are those things that are required where blood is shed. And that obviously goes away with Christ. But offerings are like donations and gifts. When we take up an offering, when we, when we have an offering box in the back, those, those are still offerings. But God's saying offerings you, he did not desire. You know, Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how does God love a cheerful giver if he doesn't desire you to give? You have to understand what he means. What the writer of Hebrews is saying in this quote about sacrifices and that he did not desire sacrifices and offerings. He commanded them. So did he want them? Yes. You know, he says like in Exodus 29, it's along with a lot of other places that we've seen and going through Exodus and Leviticus, a bunch of other verses say something similar to, and you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. God says he likes the offerings, that they're a sweet aroma, that he likes the smell of them. So then how come David writes he doesn't desire them? It doesn't mean that he can't be pleased with them. What it means is that the sacrifices and offerings mean nothing because what he really desires is for people to obey him. So the sacrifice that's given out of disobedience, it doesn't matter. It's not a sweet aroma to God. Because what makes it a sweet aroma is not the burning of the flesh. What makes it a sweet aroma is the obedience of the heart. Oh, that they had a heart in them to keep my commandments. 
That's what God wants. The sacrifices were just a manifestation of it. You see how that ties to he loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't love you because you give. He loves you because you desire to give. You desire to do his will. That's why he loves that. That's why he, it pleases him. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So they were sacrificing these millions of animals, but if they had no faith, he didn't care. Because what he wanted was obedience. And the sacrifices were just a manifestation of that obedience. So it doesn't mean that he can't be pleased with the offering if he commanded you to give an offering. He's pleased with the offering. If he commands you to tithe and you tithe out of faith, that's pleasing to him. But what he desires is for you to see him as God, to see him as Lord, to see him as the one who gets to tell you what to do. And then the manifestations of that are then pleasing to God. So his will was always for obedience and not sacrifice. So then he says, but a body you have prepared for me. And this is, if you go back and read Psalm 40, verse 7, that's not what it says in our translation. But he's quoting from the Septuagint, which is really interesting when you think about him quoting from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was translated by a bunch of rabbis from Hebrew to Greek, around 250, 230 to 250, somewhere in there, B.C. And yet, these unbelieving, because there's there's no evidence that they were believers, these unbelieving Jews are all translating this, and they translate it, it's much more literally, my ears you have opened. But they translate it, not as my ears you have opened, but they translate it, but a body you have prepared for me. And so the writer of Hebrews is is quoting a translation that is completely accurate and not a great translation. Where we would go, oh yeah, you don't want to use something like the New Living Translation, that's just a paraphrase. He's actually quoting from what's essentially a paraphrase. It seems most likely that they recognized that Psalm 40 was a messianic psalm. That's very clear from the context of it. And the words are such that you could translate it, but it would be, it's, it's, Hebrew is hard to translate because it's more these pictures than it is the, the literal filling it of words like we expect from Greek or from English. But you could translate it, but a body you have prepared for me. But it's because you're pulling in a whole bunch of context to say this is the right translation. But the writer of Hebrews grabs and says, yeah, this is the right translation. Even though it's a paraphrase, even as you, there's no way you can say it's a literal translation. But they end up translating it to the correct meaning, and they quote that this is about the fact that God had to prepare a body, that Christ had to become incarnate so that our sins could be taken away. You know, my ears you have opened, you could think of that and go, well, God is saying that, that 
he opened David's ears to recognize that sacrifices weren't needed, which David clearly understood that this wasn't about the sacrifices. But the writer of Hebrews' whole argument is based on this idea of, but a body you have prepared for me. And so he's using this quote and saying, this is correct. This is the right interpretation of that passage. So by taking on flesh as a baby, Christ taking on flesh, he's declared that God had prepared a body for him so that he could be the sacrifice. Even though he didn't desire sacrifices, he, came, he brought him as a sacrifice because it would take away sins. And again, it's not so that God would close his eyes to sin, but that he would actually deal with sin. He would actually take away sin. So then he flushes out the idea and says, in burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, why did he command these things if he didn't desire them? But those things were, were necessary because of sin. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, they, they were a consequence of the fall. It's not what God desired from the beginning. What God desired is, is for a people to desire to follow him. There won't be sacrifices in heaven. There's no need for sacrifices in heaven. Sacrifices are because of sin. Without sin, there's no need for sacrifices. But all those sacrifices that they were commanded to be done, they were ineffectual in dealing with sin. So he had no pleasure in them because what offended him was the disobedience. What offended him was the sin. So in burnt offering and sacrifices, you had no pleasure. The sacrifices, you see this through so many of the Old Testament prophets where they go, they're doing these sacrifices, but God wants to vomit when he sees the sacrifices. The sacrifices are commanded, and they're sure we're the people of God because we're doing the sacrifices. But God had no pleasure in, in them. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He can't find pleasure in sacrifices if those sacrifices are not done with faith, with actually believing that God is God and there is no other. And throughout the, the, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, all you hear over and over again is they don't have faith. And so those sacrifices instead, where they're thinking we're doing these sacrifices, God has to like us. God is saying these sacrifices are offensive to me rather than that I like them. Like in Isaiah 1, 13 and 14, what was supposed to be a sweet aroma, God says, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. So we're in Leviticus, he's saying it's a sweet aroma when it's mixed with sin. It's not a sweet aroma because it's righteousness that God desires. It's obedience that God desires. 
And that obedience is always a product of faith. It always was a product of faith. So they'd go through the motions, they'd do the sacrifices, and instead of God saying, this is a sweet aroma, he'd say, this is an abomination to me. I despise these things. They'd gather in Jerusalem and have their feast weeks. They'd have all these firstborn animals come up, and they'd sacrifice them so that blood would be pouring out in the street, and God would be saying, I hate this. This is an abomination. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he took no pleasure in the sacrifices. So then he said, his response to God the Father, not being pleased with the blood of bulls and goats, but by obedience. Christ declared that that's the reason he had come. He had come to do the will of the Father. So he says, behold, and when you see behold, it's saying pay attention to this. Watch what I'm saying. This is what you're supposed to understand. And that's what David was writing in the psalm, but he The writer of Hebrews quotes it to say, Behold, pay attention to this. This is what we're supposed to understand about Christ's coming. God had searched the whole world and found none righteous, no, not one. So in response to that, the lack of righteousness, Christ has come. Christ took on flesh, not to be a sacrifice, that was necessary for us to be saved, but he took on flesh so that there would be somebody finally who obeyed. In Romans, Paul quotes from Psalm 14 to say, this is why Christ had to come, why he had to take on flesh. Psalm 14, 2 through 7 The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as ate bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great fear, for the God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. He looked around and found none that was righteous, and so there had to be a righteous one. That's why Christ took on flesh. Behold, I took on flesh to do the will of the Father. Took on flesh. He became man. He goes, look, in the volume of the book, Israel never understood this. Because they always thought that they were right with God. They always thought that they were fine. They always thought as they're going to kill Christ, they're going, this is so Israel will survive. This is so we'll remain the people of God. We're going to kill the Son of God. Even when Jesus says the parable of the landowner that says, so if he sends the Son and they kill the Son, what what will happen? It will be taken away and given to another. Well, no, we'll kill the Son because that's how we'll keep being the people of God. That's what Israel said, but all of the Old Testament in the volume of the book throughout the Old Testament, starting from Exodus 24 where, where they said, oh, we'll do everything you command, and then they immediately make the golden calf. They always said that they were righteous because of their sacrifices. And Christ says everything said that there had to be one who would obey. There had to be. The whole book, all of the Old Testament is written of me. It's about Christ. Because Israel never understood that they had to obey God. That it was about obedience. They swore they would do it. 
They received judgment for not doing it. But they always said the sacrifices will be sufficient. But behold, I have come to do your will. As you drop that paraphrase or that, that parenthesis about in the volume of the book, it is written to me. That's why Christ came. Christ came to do the will of God the Father because no one ever had. No one ever had. And someone had to do it or there would never be righteous people in the world. Christ came to do the will of the Father. And then he ends up with saying, Oh God, God the Son is speaking to God the Father, declaring, This is why I came. I came to do your will. What God always desired was a people who would do his will, and Christ is the first one who comes and truly does his will. And we see that at the end of his testimony when he's about to be arrested, tried and crucified in Luke twenty two, forty one and forty two. It says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone, so and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the testimony of the life of Christ, is he said, I came to do your will. Where nobody else would, Christ came to do his will. It's worthwhile to understand the context of what was quoted from Psalm 40, what goes on afterwards, 48 through 10, 40 verses 8 through 10. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Oh, that they had such a heart in them to keep my commandments. Christ was the first one that had that heart to truly keep his commandments. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourselves know I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Christ came not just to do the commandments of God, but to declare the goodness and righteousness of the commandments of God. He came them to do them in such a way that everybody knew about it. Why did they crucify Jesus Christ? They crucified Jesus Christ because he declared what the righteousness of God was. And they hated the righteousness of God. That's why they put him to death. He didn't just come to do the will of the Father. He came to make the will of the Father known. Which is why Israel, it's why the Jews put him to death. It's why all the unsaved hate him. They're not special. All the unsaved hate God because he is righteous. And they hate Christ because he declares the righteousness of God. So that's why they insist on killing him. If you do not desire righteousness, if you don't have a heart to follow after God, don't think you'd do anything else if Christ was here other than crucify him, just like the Jews did. Because that's exactly what you would do. Because you either have a heart to obey yourself or you have a heart to obey God. And you only have a heart to obey God because Jesus Christ took on flesh and did the will of the Father so that we can join him and do the will of the Father. Verses 8 and 9. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them. 
which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. So previously saying, having said, you know, the word translated previously is stronger than just what happened before. It's saying, like, to make this more prominent, to make, to make it more obvious why Jesus took on the flesh before he inhabited the body that was prepared for him. God made it clear that the reason for the sacrifices were not to take away sin. They were not because that's what God wanted. It was to testify that a better sacrifice was needed, a holy sacrifice. And so he repeats it, and this is one of the ways that, you know, I I think and a lot of other people think that the book of Hebrews is probably somebody that was that was written by taking notes from a sermon of Paul, because this reads very much like a sermon where you read the verse and then you kind of explain the verse, which is exactly what what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. He read it and then he says, okay, here's what it means, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings. He starts to talk about it and says, God didn't desire these things. He took no pleasure in them, which leaves you the question, if he took no pleasure in them, if he, if he didn't desire them, why were they in the law? If God didn't want them, why did he command them? Those things were offered according to the law. So if they're offered according to the law, why doesn't he, demand, why doesn't he desire them? And it's important to understand this principle because I've gone through a, a lot of other countries. And a lot of other countries... In the churches in other countries, everybody goes, you can't eat pork. It's really common, really super common, especially the more, the more uh, charismatic they are. They go, pork's sinful to eat. Because they think that God commanded you not to eat pork because somehow it was pleasing to him for you not to eat pork. Of course, he didn't care if Noah ate pork. And so all of a sudden, people are taking this and coming up with these doctrines that they don't understand. What he wanted was obedience. One of the easiest meats to get is pork. So what does he say? You can't have pork. Will you obey me or will you eat pork? Because it was about obedience, not about the animal. He didn't come. He didn't give those commandments so that people would not eat lobster and would only eat flounder. That's not why he gave those commandments. He gave those commandments to see if they had a heart of obedience. But instead of seeing that they had a heart of obedience, what they said is, we've done this, so that makes us righteous. They switched what was a testimony of righteousness by faith, and they made it workspace righteousness, which is why the Jews were so confident they were the people of God. Because they said, God has to accept our works. He has to desire these things. That's why he commanded them. But he put them in the law so they could say, what is God worth to me? What is obedience to God worth? Will I give up an easy source of food? Or will I instead say, I care more about the things of the world? So the people who look at those laws and they say, those laws were given because, because God doesn't want you to eat pork. That's ridiculous. 
That's completely misunderstanding why Jesus Christ came. Those laws were given where they had to sacrifice uh, uh, an animal that opened the womb of their, of their cow. They had to sacrifice it. That's a big deal. That's a lot of, lot of potential wealth that you're killing. But the question is, where, where do you trust your provisions coming from? Is it coming from God or is it coming from the world? And so obedience to that is saying, I trust God. The sacrifice was not about that God wanted the smell of that animal. What he wanted was the obedience. So they were offered according to the law. The law was given so that people could say, do I love God more than the things of this world? And they switched it to God has to be pleased to me, with me because I'm giving up things of this world. That's not what pleases God. You cannot buy your way into heaven. That's what Israel thought they could do. They could buy their way into heaven with bulls and goats. God says, I want a people who will obey me and keep my commandments always. That's what God desires. And that's why it was written in the law. He gives that in the law so that they have a testimony. They have a testimony that they constantly fall short because they have to keep giving these burnt offerings every day and these sin offerings and these trespass offerings. They have to keep giving them, keep making them, keep sacrificing these animals. Clearly it meant that they still had sin. But instead of saying their sin, they said, God has to, we have to purchase our way into heaven by the sacrifice of a bull. So they decided that their sacrifice, instead of it being a testimony of their sin that had to be dealt with, they saw it as a testimony of how they could buy their way into heaven. And that's why they crucified Christ, because he challenged that idea. They're going, we're the holy ones of Israel. And Christ goes, no, you're not. Woe to the hypocrites. So then he said, he's taking the flow of the psalm and saying that they should have recognized that the sacrifices would be ending. Because in the psalm it says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is what God desired. He desired a people who would do his will, just as Christ had come to do the will of God. And by doing his will, he took away the first. The first is the sacrifice. So he takes away the whole sacrificial system which never produced obedience. Christ's perfect sacrifice, him taking a body that God prepared for them and him coming and doing God's will in every particular, that takes away the whole sacrificial system. And it was done. There's no reason for the previous system. It's taken away that he may establish the second. Because obedience through the sacrifice of Christ was now declared and it was made obvious. The righteousness of God was made obvious to the great assembly that now the means to righteousness was not that you somehow do some work, that you can now be right with God, that never produced obedience. And it was replaced by a means that was effectual. The perfect act of obedience of Christ that we just read about. 
his passive obedience of going to the cross, that's how he produces a people who walk in righteousness. That's how he produces the people that he always desired. He took on flesh, the body that was prepared for him, and in that flesh, with all the temptations of the flesh, with all the the difficulties in the world, he came and he did the will of the Father. His act of obedience is what sanctifies us. <coughs> Verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By that will, by God the Son doing the will of the Father, it is by that will that we are sanctified. It is because he did what God required that sins are taken away because God doesn't just want one, th- one person who's sinless, but his sinless sacrifice is effective in sanctification. His sacrifice was not like the sacrifice of bulls and goats, where the sacrifice of bulls and goats, the person was left just as sinful as they were before they took it up to Jerusalem and slit its throat and poured out the blood and anointed the, the horns of the altar with the blood. They would walk away and they would be exactly as sinful as they were when they came. That's not true with the sacrifice of Christ. If Christ was sacrificed for, for you, he does take away sin. That's what he came to do, to take away sin. That's why he did the will of the Father. So by that will, we have been sanctified. The sacrificial system did nothing. Christ's sacrifice made it so that he could send his spirit. So his spirit could take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. He sent his spirit so that the law could be written on our hearts and on our minds. He did it so that we would willingly obey the Father. That's what Christ's sacrifice did. It took away sin. Not close God's eyes to it. Not just overlooked it. Not just ignore it. It was effective in actually taking away sin. God promises he will produce a holy people. He will produce a people. He came to produce a people that would worship God in spirit and in truth. He came to produce a people that were different than the Jews. That were just doing a form, thinking that that form would make them right with God. He comes in substance, and in his substance, he takes away sin, not like the blood of bulls and goats. When you encounter, when you... When you have faith in Christ and his sacrifice, he cleanses you. And yes, we still need to be cleansed. Yes, he's still working on us. But it's to deny the efficacy of Christ to say that belief does not result in circumcision of the heart, does not result in a turning away from sin. Christ came to do it, and if he does not take away your sin when you believe, he is no different than the blood of bulls and goats. And his sacrifice was acceptable to God. It was pleasing to God. (coughs) So we have been sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ does. We are made holy, and not just in some theoretical, rhetorical sense. 
where the words used, where they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, that was Israel. That's what bulls and goats produced. Christ produces real holiness. He produces real separation from the world. He produces real victory over sin. He produces real slaves of righteousness. This is his sacrifice. He came to do the will of the Father so that we would do the will of the Father, and he will not fail in what he came to do. So Christ's sacrifice is effectual to produce what God always desired, to have a people that had a heart in them, to keep his commandments. That's what he desired, and that's what Christ produces through his crucifixion, through his sacrifice. So we have been sanctified through the offering. Through the gift that God the Son made to God the Father, we're sanctified. That Jesus Christ chose to go to the cross as an offering to the Father so that we could be a people that are cleansed of our sin. We could be a people where God is taking our sins away from us. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, that body that God prepared for him, that he took on through his incarnation, he can sanctify our flesh. He can sanctify our minds. He can sanctify our hearts because he became like us. The sacrifice of bulls and goats were not pleasing to God. Isaiah 53, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's the pleasure of the Lord? To have a people who have a heart to obey him and to keep his commandments. That's what's pleasing to God. And that's what prospers at the hand of Christ. That's why it pleased the Lord to bruise him. (coughs) It would be effective to produce what pleases God which is obedience out of faith, obedience out of a heart to serve God. The pleasure of the Lord will prosper at the hand of Christ. He will produce a sanctified people. And so his sacrifice is not like the blood of bulls and goats that had to be sacrificed year after year after year. His sacrifice is once and for all. Because God said, I want someone who do my will. And Christ took on flesh to do the will of the Father so that we do the will of the Father. Let me give you some applications. The first is the obvious one. God desires obedience and not sacrifice. When we think of God desiring sacrifice, as was common until Christ came, they all acted like all their God really wanted was to, to smell burning flesh. Burning flesh is a picture of hell. God will smell enough burning flesh that's pleasing to him. It's a picture of hell. They believed in works-based righteousness, that that was what they were paying for their salvation. But it's important for us to recognize that the church today isn't that far off from that. Look at how many people, like, look at somebody who, who like, has, you know, you look at somebody like... Um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um, Keep thinking Doug Wilson. It's not Doug Wilson. Um, 
Rick Warren. That Rick Warren, he goes, I baptize 16,000 people every year. And people go, oh, that's an amazing man of God. You understand when you say that, and when the church widely says that, it believes in works-based righteousness. That's, that's a testimony of belief in works-based righteousness, that you're made right by your sacrifices. Or the person who goes, oh, he goes to a missionary. He goes to Africa, and he's lived in Africa for 30 years. This is a man of God. Look at what he's given up. That's belief in works-based righteousness. There's the people who go into the temple when Christ is there, and they're carrying in their gold coins, and they throw their gold coins into the coffer. And then a widow comes, and she throws in two mites. And Christ says, the widow, her, what she gave, is far greater than what they gave. There's no way we can judge whether a sacrifice is pleasing to God or not. But the church exalts these people saying, that must be a man of God. And what they really believe in is works-based righteousness. The work that you're expected to do is the work that God gives you to do. And that's what's pleasing to God. Is you do the work you're supposed to do. In some people, that work might be almost nothing. It might be the two mites that get thrown into the coffer. And somebody else might be throwing in one gold piece and he should be throwing in 20. And God goes, that's not a man of faith. That person who threw in the two mites, that's a man of faith. Don't believe in works-based righteousness. Be faithful to do the work God has given you to do. Be faithful to use your talents. Be faithful to use the things that God has entrusted to you. And don't think, oh, look, somebody else, look at all they did. They must be faithful. That's not a testimony of faithfulness. The high priest did all kinds of sacrifices. And they had no faith. God doesn't care about what you produce. What God cares about is whether you're being faithful to him and obeying him and using the things that he has given you the way you should be using it. He's not saying you're great in the kingdom of heaven if you've baptized all these people. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who serves the best who takes what they have and uses what they have, not to bring honor and glory to themselves, but to bring honor and glory to God. True faith produces obedience to God. And it's faith that's pleasing to God. And that obedience is a testimony, is a product of that faith. That's that's pleasing to God. We're supposed to not focus on what the results are. What we're supposed to focus on is walking by faith rather than by sight. The faithful person is the person who gets up in the morning and says, what should I do today? What would God have me to do today to redeem the time? That's what's pleasing to God. Do you treat him as your Lord? That's what's pleasing to God. Not what you produce, because to some he gives increase, to some he doesn't give the same increase. It's God that gives the increase. What's pleasing to God is not what increase he gives you. What's pleasing to God is your faithfulness in what he has given and entrusted to you. Another application, we're saved to obedience. 
The sacrifices and offerings are not what God desires. What God desires is for each of us to have faith to trust his commandments. Even when they don't seem to make sense, even when according to the wisdom of the world they're insane, they're contrary to what will work. There's people who tithe to feel better about themselves. That's no more pleasing to God than any of the offerings in the Old Testament, which God found to be a horrible stench rather than a pleasing aroma. The pleasing aroma comes through faith. We have to recognize that God doesn't need, the church doesn't need the tithes any more than God needed the burnt ox. He's got the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide some other way. He doesn't need your tithes. You're not getting right with God by tithing. God doesn't need your money. He has plenty of money. He gives you the opportunity to give money so that you see whether you trust the world or whether you trust God, whether you have faith and walk by it or whether you only walk by sight. That's what giving money is about. It's not like God needs the money. He doesn't need the money. He's God. He can make it whenever he wants to. But it's so even in the offerings now, the offerings haven't changed. The offerings are still about obedience. The person who comes and they go, oh, I'm going to tithe, and they give 2%, but that 2% is a million dollars. Well, who cares? They're still in a disobedience. But the other person who all they do is they can come and give $5 because all they make in a week is $50 or whatever. God still says, that's pleasing to me. The issue is the obedience, not the money. God can always produce money someplace else. We're saved to obedience. The sacrifice and offerings, that's, those are testimony of the obedience. They are not the end that God wants. The end that God wants is walking by faith. Another application, Christ's sacrifice was effectual. His obedience to the will of the Father produces in those who have faith a real obedience. The millions of animals sacrificed for those 1,400 years of the tabernacle and temples, none of them were effective in removing sin. But Christ's obedience was effective by that will. By that will, we are sanctified. And so when we look at ourselves and we see ourselves turning from sin, when we see ourselves, the power of sin broken in our lives, we're never to look at ourselves. What we're supposed to say is that's what Christ's obedience to God produced. Because it's by that will, by his doing the will of the Father, that's how we are sanctified. By his obedience to God, we become obedient to God. His sacrifice produced what God wanted, a people that had a heart in him to always keep his commandments. The last application I have is we need to realize how serious the apostasy is. To say that you can be saved and continue in sin. That is to deny the purpose for which Christ came. Christ came to take away sin. Not to ignore it, not to close his eyes to it, not to pretend like it doesn't exist. He came to deal with it, to take it away, to remove it. 
That's why Christ suffered on the cross. And to pretend like you can just continue in sin as you were before and that you're saved is to reject the fundamental understanding of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ came to take away sin. That's why he walked on this earth. That's why he had a body. That's why he was crucified. He did it to deal with sin. He did it to be the second Adam, to take away sin. Jesus Christ, or the first Adam brought sin into the world, and the second Adam came and took on flesh and died to remove sin from the world. He came to destroy the works of the devil, which is sin. And to think that you can be saved and him not taking away sin in your life, that's a lie. That is to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that he died so that your sins could be ignored. He died so your sins could be taken away. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for this this passage. We thank you for this time. We thank you for, for the fact that you tell us that it is by your power and by your might that you cleanse us of sin because we know we could never do it. But yet you can produce a holy people. You will produce a holy people. So we praise you that you came and did what none of us could ever do. None of us could ever do by our power, by our wisdom, by our strength. All we could do was rebel. And you came, and through your sacrifice, you ended the sacrificial system because the perfect sacrifice had came, the sacrifice that could take away the sins of the world. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for what you are doing. May we be faithful to walk in accordance to your commandments. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us bring honor and glory to the name of our Father. In your name we pray. Amen.